Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about a very common problem that affects many older adults, which is urinary incontinence. And here to help me cover this topic is my fellow geriatrician, Dr. Nicole Didick. She is a board-certified geriatrician based in Ontario, Canada, who has a special interest in educating older adults and families. She has been in practice for almost 20 years, and then after completing a master's in education in 2018, she started an educational website and YouTube channel called The Wrinkle. We met last year through the Helping Older Parents membership, and since we share a common interest in helping families by providing practical information about aging health, Dr. Didick has been contributing to Better Health While Aging since last year by helping me answer comments and sharing some of her own very high-quality educational resources with our community. So it's been wonderful to collaborate with her, and in fact, I'm very pleased to announce that she is going to be co-hosting some of our Better Health While Aging podcast episodes over the coming month. So today, we're going to talk about this very important topic of urinary incontinence, and this is something that we address regularly in geriatrics. We're trained to address it in aging adults because it's so very common. And it's also one of those conditions that benefits from a different approach than in younger adults. And since good doctors are also lifelong learners, to deepen her understanding of this issue, Dr. Didick recently interviewed a geriatrician researcher who specializes in this topic, Dr. Adrian Wagg. And she's written an article on this topic for better health while aging. She also has a related new video on the wrinkle, which we will link to in the show notes. So I'm really pleased to have her here today to share with us the most important things that older adults and families should know about addressing urinary incontinence in late life, and also to teach us all about some of the particular insights she gained from talking with our expert colleagues. So Dr. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Leslie. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And uh, such a great thing to talk about today, such an important topic. So urinary incontinence is one of those, you know, quote, geriatric giants that we're taught about in geriatrics training, but there's always more to learn. So I'm kind of curious to start us off, what were some of the newer things or surprising things that you learned from this deep dive you recently did to refresh yourself and deepen your understanding of urinary incontinence? Well, you know, it was interesting because like you say, this is something that we cover um, in some detail when we're learning how to be geriatricians, but then it seems like so many other things kind of come up that tend to take priority. So I appreciated the chance to revisit urinary incontinence and kind of refresh my knowledge and pick up some new pearls. Uh, But when I looked at some of the statistics about uh, incontinence, it was pretty sobering. And I didn't realize that people who are experiencing incontinence, usually they live with their symptoms for three years on average before they actually even go and look for treatment. And then a lot of physicians um, or healthcare providers in general are a little bit dismissive of of the concern sometimes. So they'll say, well, you know, uh, it's normal. And um, two thirds of women think it's normal to wet yourself as you get older, but a lot of uh, healthcare providers feel that way too. So it can be kind of an uphill battle, but it really affects quality of life. So men who have incontinence, they are more likely to retire early or to work shorter hours because of the challenges with always needing to use the toilet or, or have uh, incontinence or frequency. And, you know, we know that it's, it's a risk factor for nursing home admission, right? Because I'm sure you've seen uh, in your practice, and I know in mine, it's so common that the urinary incontinence is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. So people can, if they're living as a, 
as a caregiver for someone who's an older adult, maybe a parent or a partner, when you know they can cope with a lot of things, but when there's incontinence, it's just so much laundry and so much more work. So, so it's it's an important thing that we should pay more attention to. Um, so it was good to kind of be reminded of that. And um, and you know one of the things I didn't know was that it really increases the risk of depression in women who are living with incontinence. Uh, so women with severe incontinence have an 80% greater risk than women who aren't of being depressed. Wow. Um, so that was kind of the downside. But then I, I learned too, I mean, one thing Dr. Wegg really emphasizes is how to prevent incontinence. So there are things you can do in midlife that will reduce your risk of having incontinence in later life. So, mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of exciting to learn yeah. as well. Well, yeah. I want us to cover those for sure during this episode, but you know, in listening yeah. to, to what you recap there, one of the things that struck me was how, you know, the incontinence, how it affects older adults, you know, even those younger adults who are working, right? You were talking about how it can uh, cause people to, to retire earlier. And then also can be an issue for people who are much older, much frailer, much more dependent. The ones who might be at home with somebody really taking care of them and that incontinence might be what one of the things that really tips a family member into saying, I can't do this anymore. You're going to have to be placed into a facility. So, you know, a lot of variability in who can be affected by incontinence and that it's not just people who are very frail, very old but it can be, you know, people who are still uh, working age, older adults and have a really profound impact. Well, before we go on about incontinence, maybe we can also have you just clarify what the term means, because I think sometimes as geriatricians, we might consider somebody to have some urinary incontinence issues and they might not. So what do you find people usually think of as urinary incontinence and how do we want to frame it for the audience? Yeah, that's a great thing to start with because um, you're right. I think a lot of people think about incontinence as peeing your pants or, or becoming wet. You know, or actually you quote using... unquote need a diaper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like how many jokes are there about depends and stuff like that? Right. right. Uh -huh. So yeah, but that is that's that can be a part of incontinence actually losing urine. Um, but there can also be issues with just what we would call probably lower urinary tract symptoms. So the lower urinary tract, it's your, includes your bladder, but then it also includes, you know, the tube that connects the bladder to the outside world, which is the urethra. Um, it includes the, uh, in men, the prostate, in women, it includes the vaginal tissues and that. So there's, if, when any of those uh, parts have symptoms, then that can be part of part of the incontinence syndrome. So it could be something like feeling like you have to go very, very often. So you, a person might not even pass urine, but they might have that feeling that they have to go. So we call that urgency. And if that happens very often, or if they do pass urine very often, we call that frequency. So, and then other people might get some cramps or some uh, spasm or pain right. in, that, in one of those organs. It could mean losing small amounts of urine all the yes. time, yes. you know, just kind of dribbling or only with certain activities. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, and then we're kind of getting into the, the types of incontinence, you know, but. Um, yeah, well, we should cover those too, but I think it's an important thing because sometimes I find in asking people, you know, have you had any concerns about urinary incontinence? They'll say no, but then it turns out they are experiencing that urge or those little leaks, right? And they kind of think when we say urinary incontinence, they mean, do you like wet yourself massively? You know, which can happen to some people, but that that's that's not the only thing that you know we're interested in and want to address. And that having those those little leaks or you know dribbling or discomfort or as you were saying you know urge or going often, those are all issues that you know fall under this umbrella that do affect quality of life, and that we ideally as health providers want to know about so that we can help people with them. And sometimes it's not even the bladder. So as geriatricians, we know that sometimes the organ or the system that shows up with the problem, it's because of a completely different organ system. So a lot of people have some issues with lower urinary tract symptoms, but they also have things like arthritis 
um, and or Parkinson's disease, which involves moving more slowly, moving with more difficulty, um, or dementia, where it can be hard to remember where the toilet is or, you know, um, that you've just gone, so you feel like you have to go again. So oftentimes it's another system that is overlapping with some vulnerability in the urinary system, and that produces the incontinence. So we have to look at the whole person. So maybe you can take us through right now the, you know, the main, the way that we categorize incontinence uh -huh. into a few main types, why that becomes more common as people get older. What are the kind of changes that tend to results or contribute to that kind of incontinence? Yeah, sure. And there's different ways of classifying it, but you know, the way that I was taught and which I always sort of come back to is that there are four kind of main types. And one of them is the urge incontinence. So um, that kind of does what, what it sounds like. So people have a frequent urge. Um, it can be extremely difficult to delay going to the bathroom and there can be loss of urine sometimes, usually small amounts of urine. And so that can happen. Um, some of those are related to just normal aging. So, you know, as people get older, the bladder muscle uh, gets a little bit more fibrotic and it's not as much muscle tissue. There's more fibrous tissue in there. So the bladder isn't as uh, snappy, the, the bladder muscle. And people have a less, um, less ability to sense when their bladder is actually full. So you might get that signal to empty the bladder when your bladder is fuller. So it's much more urgent when you do get it. So that, those are, and then, you know, other things can contribute to urge as well. Like if you have um, a bladder stone or something like that, um, but that's kind of what, what urge is getting at. And then there's stress incontinence. So stress is the second sort of main type. And we think of that probably more as affecting women because um, we think about the bladder outlet, the urethra, uh, you know, is uh, well, well, quickly to vast. clarify when you say stress <laughs> incontinence, because I think often like the word stress means like, oh, my God, I'm right. so anxious. I have so much to do. But this is actually incontinence that's related to like physical pressure, like when people jump, right? Yes. For those who are exercising, laugh, yeah. pick something yeah. up, right? Yeah. Or uh, sometimes during sex. Or um, sometimes during sex. So yeah, so when we say stress and comments, mm. we're usually thinking physical, phys things That's that put right. physical pressure lower down on the belly or abdomen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's a great point. It can yeah. make you feel stressed. It can uh, certainly make you feel stressed if you're worried you might leak when you yes. <laughs> do something. Yeah, at an time. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you were saying what, what, uh, what happens as people get older that contributes to stress and comments? Well, I mean, so in women, again, we sort of um, think about the, um, the bladder outlet is, is um, just becomes a little bit shrunken and atrophied. So some of that has to do with uh, changes in estrogen levels and that. So there's, it's because that's kind of like a valve that's holding the urine in, right? Right. right. And yes, so if that's yeah. not being maintained as well, then it takes less pressure, I guess, for you to leak. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's, uh -huh. Yeah. So any kind of impact is going to, there's going to be a little loss right. of urine. And then uh, childbearing has often affected, uh, you know, it's thought to affect stress incontinence, right? Can you just speak briefly to that? No, that's absolutely true. So the more pregnancies and births that, that, that have uh, happened in that, to that part of the body um, and the type of birth as well. So a vaginal birth can have more impact than uh, than a C-section. So that is an important piece of the person's history to get. Uh, and your doctor would want to know about that too, if you're going in to talk about incontinence, what your sort of uh, obstetrical history is like. And, and as well, I mean, I don't want to discourage people from doing activity, but if you do those um, higher impact um, activities, that can, you know, that can increase the risk for stress uh, stress incontinence as well. So if you've been a marathon runner or somebody who's, you know, done a lot of dance or things like that, a lot of bouncing and jumping and running, um, that can be, that can be a risk factor, but so can obesity, you know, so having just more tissue there in the, in the abdomen does put more pressure on a chronic basis. So obesity is for sure a risk factor. Uh, for stress incontinence too. But uh, stress incontinence, I mean, we'll talk about it a little later. There are also, that's one where there are, you know, those uh, exercises 
that uh-huh. can help counter and strengthen. So we'll talk about that soon, but maybe take us through the other types, main types of incontinence before we move on. Yeah, and you're right. And there's a lot more to talk about with stress because you're right. It's not just the urethra, but it's the, or that valve, but it's the muscles of the pelvic floor. So we'll dig into them some more. But then there's, you can also have a blockage of that outlet. So, you know, the outlet can be leaky, but it can also be blocked. And uh, a very common cause of that is if the prostate gland is enlarged. So that is quite a common uh, situation. And then that can kind of, then the bladder doesn't empty completely or as well. And then there can be little dribbles of urine that kind of leak out because the bladder is so overfull, uh, but the outlet is blocked. So that we call overflow. And, uh, and again, that's often associated with prostate conditions, but it could also happen if the bladder muscle is more, is, is much weaker. So some neurological conditions uh, can cause that uh, where the bladder tone or, you know, the sort of mus- muscular tone of the bladder is diminished and that is more likely to cause an overflow situation too. So the pattern there would be constant dribbling and not really completely. Yeah. I imagine too that, you know, when the, uh, also with overflow, when people urinate, it can be smaller quantities unless the bladder is quite distended. It's not generating enough pressure to get past the obstruction. Right. Right. So I feel like often there are the, sometimes with overflow, they're having frequent small peas. Yeah. Or, and then, yeah. And often associated with that, there's like hesitancy, like it takes you a while before you, uh, before you get that flow going, and then that's very frustrating is getting those small amounts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. um, yeah. And that's where we do an ultrasound too. I know uh, we might get into this later when we talk about tests, but yeah, that, so that bladder you'd, you'd feel like, well, I'm not, there's not much pee cause I'm not putting much out. But then if we were to check the bladder uh, after someone's gone pee, we would probably see that it was full. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have more than kind of a, a, um, a cup of fluid, you know, uh, 250 mLs in your bladder, that's probably, you know, after you've just peed that we would consider that you're retaining urine. So we'd see that in those folks that have overflow. So maybe the last two types of uh, yeah. incontinence that we would, so we've mentioned, you know, urge, urge. stress, yeah. overflow. And yeah. so then the last two? Well, the so the, the last uh, one, and then the, the, Number five would probably be that there can be mixed symptoms, right? So you could have urge and stress or urge and overflow. But the other one is, uh, we used to call it functional incontinence, but I think a better term for it is disability associated. So that's like um, when we were talking before about how somebody just can't get to the bathroom at the right time, at the right speed. Or maybe when the person gets into the bathroom, there's difficulty using the toilet correctly. Or maybe they can't remember. Right. 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 Yeah. So it could be due to physical limitations, physical mobility limitations, or other physical limitations, or it could be due to cognitive limitations, memory problems, or something, some other form of confusion. Or some combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's amazing. You know, I do see that a lot in my practice and uh, I've seen amazingly imaginative approaches to sort of solving this problem. I had one, I still remember this one man who was looking after his wife who was living with dementia and she was starting to have a lot of incontinence and his solution was just to put plastic um, like saran wrap everywhere on the floor where she was walking and you know in the hopes that this would sort of protect the protect the uh, the flooring and that and it ended up that it actually the saran wrap became slippery and it led to a fall and you know, his creativity was not uh, rewarded, but it's, you know, it, I mean, people really do try to work around. It can be a real, a real challenge. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. you know, why is it so important to like understand what might be the type of incontinence? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the treatment is, uh, is going to be based on what the cause is. You're right. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we could make a misstep actually. So if we're treating somebody who has um, overflow incontinence the same way as someone who has an urge incontinence. Now, some people have both, but suppose we want to um, tighten up the, the bladder muscle 
so that the, uh, the bladder doesn't release urine as much. Well, if somebody is prone to overflow incontinence, they might get into a urinary retention situation. So we have to, you know, the more we know about what is the cause of the incontinence, the more we're gonna be able to tailor our approach. And I would say the, you know, we'll be able to frame the expectations as well because medications can only do so much. Right. I mean, it definitely would depend on the type of incontinence and what we thought was contributing. And I, I think in this way, incontinence is like so many of these other, uh, you know, we call them geriatric syndromes, right? Like falls or sometimes like um, confusion or not thinking as well as you could, where there might be several contributors or causes and that we're most successful in helping people when we kind of dig in to understand what's happening and then offer a solution that addresses that. Because uh, I think people often just hear that, oh, there's a medication for incontinence. And so shouldn't I just have that? And I think a busy primary care doctor might well just give you that medication. I would say in the United States, a very commonly prescribed medication would be something like a Ditropan which is for overactive bladder. But first of all, it's anticholinergic. It interferes with your memory and thinking somewhat. And second of all, if, if that's not actually the main problem, that your bladder is overactive, maybe you're a man with a prostate and it's actually that you're retaining. And that kind of medication could, you know, make it worse, right? Ditropan makes everything worse. <laughs> Ditropan <laughs> makes a lot of things worse. Really Although I think it can be helpful to, to some people. So I think we're always emphasizing that in geriatrics, that our first step is to really, you know, look into the potential causes. And from there, we can come up with a plan that we think is more likely to, to succeed. So I would love for you to talk about how, how you do that first uh, evaluation. But, but first of all, you have a consultation clinic. And um, how often are you finding that older adults and families bring up continence concerns to you? And what are the most common complaints that you hear about? Well, you know what? I mean, I do ask about it uh, every visit but and many times other things overshadow it but i find that after like a second or third visit often the incontinence will come up and a lot of it is nighttime uh urination which i know you've covered really uh extensively before uh in a podcast on the better health well yes we'll link to it that was episode 92 with another geriatrician who specifically researches nighttime urination but yes that's a common complaint and what it else do you hear about common. and then it's also that they're going that the person is just going too often to the toilet so it'll just be uh that the person you know has just finished going and has to go again or will will pee before they leave the house and then pee when they get to the shop you know half an hour later and then pee before they leave there and just be sort of chained to the toilet and feel like they can't sit through a movie they can't you know the the frequency is right. just too much and this can um, really socially limit people i find right but you know they're kind of afraid to go out because what if they need to use the bathroom? And then I'm sure you see this as well, but I, I find that some of uh, my older patients are being very cautious about how much they drink. Yes. Because they're worried that they're going to provoke more urges to go in an environment where they don't feel like they can get to a, a bathroom quickly. So there we might be worrying about, you know, we want to make sure they don't get dehydrated, especially if it's hot out. And summertime, and meanwhile, they're worrying about, you know, what if I need to go and I'm, I'm out. Yeah. Or skipping the water pill so that they don't, you know, that they don't have to go as much, which, you know, some, some people take water pills that they don't need, but some uh, do need them to treat important conditions and then they, they avoid it because they don't want to pee. Or just the fear of, I had one lady who uh, was living in a long-term care home, but she felt really ostracized because other people at her dinner table were, were uh, telling her that she smelled of urine. And oh. so she was so self-conscious about, about that, you know, wanted to start eating alone. Uh, so there, and, and there are a lot of people who are always, they always will bring an extra pair of clothing or they'll only wear certain clothing um, that could hide an accident. Yeah, I hear, I do hear a lot about how it's, uh, it's restricting the person's life and their mobility. And, and then sometimes it gets into a vicious circle because somebody doesn't want to go out or doesn't want to exercise because they might have an accident. 
and then becomes less less active and then gets you know more obesity more uh trouble with with movement and so they're more likely to be incontinent so we have to sort of try to figure it out and break that cycle if we can so we as your friendly online geriatricians would say <laughs> that if you had any concerns about holding your urine controlling it you know yeah. sprinkles wetting <laughs> feeling like you have to go often we yeah. think you should bring it up to a health provider because yes. it's an important issue and often it can be better managed or treated. And um, so now, why don't you take us through what the health provider would ideally do, what you do to uh, evaluate this when it's when either somebody brings it up to you or maybe you uncover it because you ask extra questions right. to make sure it's not an issue. Yeah. So, you know, we have to make sure that there isn't something uh, something that's reversible right? So some sudden uh, issue or, or, you know, chronic or, or subacute kind of thing that's come up that we could reverse. So, uh, you know, we have that little mnemonic of diapers. So we want to make sure that there isn't a delirium, make sure yes. that there isn't an infection. Well, um, and so really quickly to clarify, so diapers is a diapers. mnemonic that I think I was taught in fellowship and maybe <laughs> you were too. I was. Uh, it's D-I-A-P-P-E-R-S, the right. way we had it. And yeah. each letter stands for a cause that we as geriatricians are encouraged to consider when somebody uh -huh. has incontinence, especially if it's new or getting worse. So D is for, you were saying delirium. Yeah. So D could be delirium. So if somebody's sick with something else and too confused now to, uh, to uh, control the, the urinary process. Is there an infection? Although, you know, you've covered um, asymptomatic bacteria uh, before. So a lot of times there can be bugs in the urine, but it's not necessarily an infection and it's not necessarily the cause of the incontinence. But it is something you know to think about but older adults do get true urinary tract infections and so if there's new or worse incontinence we consider the possibility of do they have a clinical urinary tract infection yeah yeah we want to rule that out uh-huh um, we want to think about atrophic vaginitis yes. so that is um you know with atrophy of the tissues in the vagina and the lower urinary tract is there something there that could be treated with an estrogen cream or something that could, could fix that. And that comes up because as women uh, get older after menopause, they have less estrogen. Uh -huh. And so the tissues down there in the vagina and in the, that area get thinner. And uh -huh. that can sometimes contribute to uh, continence issues. Okay. Uh -huh. Absolutely. And then there, there's two Ps, as you mentioned. So pharmaceuticals is, is the first one. And so, so many medications can contribute to incontinence. And, you know, that's one thing geriatricians love to do is look at a med list and see what they can stop. Um, so things like a diuretic, like a water pill, um, but also things like, that might not be obvious, so alcohol can contribute to uh, peeing more often. Caffeine can definitely stimulate the bladder. Or things like opioids, they can contribute to incontinence in many ways. You know, they could cause constipation, uh, which affects incontinence. We'll they definitely cause constipation. Yeah, right? Uh -huh. um, they could make a person too dopey to find the toilet. Benzodiazepines, same thing. They could make a person too confused. And then some antidepressants have those anticholinergic uh, side effects, uh, like you mentioned, like oxybutynin or, or ditropan. And so that can cause urinary retention and then some of that overflow incontinence. And, um, and even allergy medications, like so some of the more, not, um, not the non-drowsy antihistamines and decongestants, but the more old fashioned ones, they can worsen incontinence as well. So that, you know, we like to look at all the medications carefully and consider whether or not they could be contributing. The other P is psychological disorders. So again, delirium, but also depression. Sometimes people have incontinence as a part of a depression, just not caring enough to sort of tend to that component um, of their life or a dementia, as we've talked about before. Uh, the E is for excess urine output, which is certain metabolic or medical conditions. So, you know, if a person's glucose level is very high, they might be producing more urine. 
than yeah. usual or yeah. similarly if their calcium level is high. Yeah. And for glucose, I think of it as usually above 250, right? Uh, that's what I think of, but only because I have some people who ask me if it's the glucose and the, you know, because their parent is diabetic, but unless it's really quite high, we, we would say it's probably something else. <laughs> But when we check urine with a dipstick, it does check for glucose. So that is part of how we can determine that. And then, uh, or certain forms of kidney disease might cause uh, excess urine output. That's right? true. Yeah. If there's difficulty with properly concentrating the urine or, retain, or you know, retaining fluid, for sure. Yeah. And then the R is restricted mobility. So again, people can't get to the toilet. And the S is stool. Um, which I learned it as stool, stool, stool with an exclamation point. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, if you're in, if you have constipation, if you have a, a big piece of stool in there, uh, in the lower uh, part of the rectum or, you know, the colon, it's going to compress the bladder outlet and uh -huh. there's going to be some incontinence. So, yeah. so um, yet another reason to take constipation seriously, which we is. do as geriatricians. <laughs> yes, it, we do. And you've got to talk about it and deal with it. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so I want to make sure that all of those things that I've considered them and that they're not, uh, they're not the main issue that we're dealing with because I could, you know, treat that and then see, reevaluate how is the continence going. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then what else do you do at those initial evaluations? Right. So, I mean, I do do a physical examination and I like to look at the, um, I think it's important to look at the, uh, the person's urinary apparatus, right? So that might include uh, doing a pelvic exam. Um, because, you know, another thing we haven't talked about, but in women, sometimes there can even be a prolapse of the bladder or the uterus. And what no. exactly does that mean, prolapse? Right. So that's where the bladder uh, or the uterus, usually it's the uterus actually, will kind of um, sag and it'll protrude out into the vagina. So sometimes a person will notice it themselves that they can feel something or even see a little um, lump kind of coming out. Or sometimes it's only, you can only sort of see it on a physical examination. That would definitely uh, contribute to incontinence, and that can be treated. Uh, sometimes uh, surgery is needed, but oftentimes there's a thing called a pessary that you can put in, which is kind of like a little disc, and usually a gynecologist or urologist would put that in there, and then it just bolsters the, uh, the uterus up a little bit, and then the incontinence is less of a problem, but you won't know that. Until, unless you do a pelvic exam. So. Right. It can make a huge difference in women's lives. I remember I was very impressed at the Eurogyn clinic when I was a fellow. They had these nurse practitioners who were just whizzes at uh, doing the exam and then at sort of selecting the, you know, the right pessary right. or device to prop things up. And so again, you know, if, if incontinence is mentioned and the doctor just dashes off a prescription, without asking more questions and doing an exam, you could be missing, you could be getting a medication that has side effects and isn't even treating the main cause. So yeah. And, and prolapse can be serious too, and it could worsen, you know, I've seen situations where it gets much more serious and complicated. So yeah, you've got to look, um, somebody has to look. Somebody should take a look. Yeah, they should. And for men, what do we look at and examine for men? Right. So, um, you know, and looking at women, we look at all the tissues down there. And I, in both genders, I do a rectal exam. And in, so in, in um, everybody, I'd be looking to see if there's stool there, um, you know, so if there is some hard stool, then we can go back to that uh, constipation issue. But in men, it's important to feel the prostate gland and to see if it seems to be enlarged. And then, you know, you can, if you're experienced in feeling prostate glands, you can probably comment on the texture of it, uh, you know, whether or not it feels normal or maybe a bit firm, or, you know, um, you might think that there could be a prostate cancer or something like that. Um, but that's very important as well, because an enlarged prostate is something that uh, could very much be contributing to, to the incontinence. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you do a good, careful exam. You do. Of the you do. relevant anatomy. Uh, and what else do you do? 
Um, and so then, you know, I look at the person's overall, you know, I do a, a sort of a complete physical exam, look and see if there's swelling, things like that, you know, is, are there any signs that there's extra fluid in the body? One of those excess urine output uh, situations, but that's pretty much the physical exam. And, and then a lot of it is the, is getting the story because, you know, I mean, when we talked about the different types of incontinence, so much of determining the type is based on the story of how, you know, when it bothers you and what's actually happening. So I want to know, like we've talked about, you know, is it constant? Is it once in a while? If it's constant, we think about overflow. If it's only related to certain activities, we think about the stress incontinence. Are there urges to go to the bathroom? That's, you know, we think about urgency. And then we'd think about, is it a small amount or is it losing the control of the whole bladder? And then we want to know about the person's lifestyle too, you know, so how much fluid are they drinking? Sometimes it's amazing that people are complaining that they're up all night peeing and then you find out that they have, you know, they're drinking bladder tea at 10 p.m. <laughs> and taking some more medications with a cup of water and then wondering why they're up peeing. So we have to be really careful about getting all of that information, how much caffeine the person's uh, consuming and so on. Sometimes it's helpful to get somebody to, to keep even more track for a period of time. So for some people, and I know that uh, in this um, article, we'll link to some of the resources that people could look at if they wanna do a bladder diary. So a bladder diary uh, can be really helpful, you know, and some of the bladder diaries I've seen are really, uh, are really complex. They include measuring your urine output and uh, all of your fluid intake and that, but uh, you know, they don't have to be that complex, but that information is gold. The geriatrician, right? Because we I love symptom diaries. I mean, I think in general, if you're going to come to the doctor to talk about something, if you can keep a little journal, Mm -hmm. And in the simplest form, just like the day when it happened and what was going on, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And if you ask us, we'll tell you sort of some specific additional things that might be related that would be helpful for you to, to journal. But yeah. I, I think, you know, it's the same thing for pain, for uh -huh. sleep, right? For, uh -huh. for, for urine, we always want to know more about, well, when exactly does it happen? And, you know, what is the pattern? Yeah. And people have difficulty remembering it. So yes, I, I love bladder diaries, and then they help us check on the success of whatever it is we recommended or changed, right? That's right, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can really get, and that can be important with the bladder, with some of the bladder medications. So some of the medications for urge, uh, incontinence especially, that we've talked about, they're not miracle drugs. For some people, they can be very helpful, but you know, sometimes they'll reduce. So if you're going to the toilet 13 times a day, when you take the medication, you know, you might find after a few weeks, you're only going eight times a day. So, you know, you might still feel like you're going to the toilet more than you would like to, but you would definitely get some improvement. So a bladder diary will help you to uh, really get an objective handle on what, you know, how it's being treated and whether or not it's worth it to you to with medication there's other ways of charting your progress too oh okay well you'll tell us about those in a sec but in short it sounds like your evaluation is you know one asking lots of questions to get information about the story what's happening and how and if the person's able to bring in notes or bladder diary that helps quite a lot then you do a careful exam of the relevant anatomy you're, you're thinking, you're checking for those diapers triggers that we often check for. And then you mentioned before checking to see how much urine is left in the bladder. So we call that the post-void residual, right? We ask people to pee. And um, you mentioned an ultrasound. Can you talk briefly about yes. how that works? So, you know, we had, um, I used to have in my clinic, I'm trying to raise money now to buy a new one, but we had a bladder scanner machine. So that was a maneuver we could do right in the office where we could, you know, have the person go pee and then just use this little portable ultrasound machine to measure how much urine was left in the bladder. So that, you know, if, you're, if your physician uh, or practitioner has uh, has one of those things it's really easy to use but otherwise you could go you know to the radiology department go pee and then have a scan done um, 
that's very helpful information because again, if it's more than about a cup of fluid or you know, 250 mils, then we would be worried that there's some retention there. And that can help us to really diagnose because that would make us, you know, because the stress, stress type incontinence, the urge, usually the bladder is pretty empty. Right. And then there's one other uh, method that we use, could use sometimes to check the post-word residual. I feel like we used to use it a little bit more in the nursing home, but that would be to insert a catheter and just drain the bladder, you know, what we call a straight catheter. So not meant to stay in there with the bag. But I bring that up because that, you know, uh, when I had my clinic, I actually had a few patients, you know, men who that was part of their chronic management was that they did that at home twice a day to empty their bladder. So yeah, so that's another approach that we, you know, sometimes can use either in the moment to check the residual if there's no ultrasound available, uh, or sometimes becomes part of the management. So now you've done a good evaluation. And so you've pretty much figured out what you think is the type of incontinence and what might be the contributors. Now, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what are the mainstays of treating incontinence to make it better for our older, our older patients? We're being geriatricians. We have to talk about the non-pharmacologic or non-medication approaches first. Right. Right. Or they're, they're safe. Uh -huh. That's right. They can be, and they can have other benefits, right? So if there's obesity, then, you know, managing the weight. So uh, could really help introducing some exercise and specifically, so exercise just in general seems to help with most types of incontinence, but pelvic floor exercises can be extremely helpful. So definitely for stress incontinence, because they do strengthen that pelvic floor, um, but also for people who have a component of urge incontinence. Um, because, you know, if you, if you learn how to do, so pelvic floor exercises, if, you know, whenever you're going pee, the, the muscles you kind of flex to stop the stream of urine, and we don't recommend that people practice that, but, um, <laughs> but those muscles sort of down there are the muscles that, that are the, the muscles of the pelvic floor. So learning how to contract and relax those muscles are pelvic floor exercises. So they help a lot with stress, but they can help with urge incontinence too. So if you feel the urge to go to the bathroom, you could do a few exercises. They're also called Kegels. So one or two good Kegels can be enough to make you be able to defer going to the toilet that time. Um, and, you know, men who are having going in for prostate surgery, if they learn how to do uh, these pelvic floor exercises, they're more likely to regain continence after their prostate surgery. So they're not just for women and they're not just for stress incontinence, but they can be used in almost any other uh, kind of incontinence. And there are, um, we'll link to some websites where you can learn. Um, how to do the exercises. There are clinics uh, with nurses and some physiotherapists have, uh, extra training in how to do pelvic floor exercises. So there are things that, you know, you do have to be pretty, you have to be able to have enough cognitive, you know, cognitive ability to learn the exercise and be able to practice it and kind of carry over some learning. But most people can learn them. So yeah. And uh, I think the evidence is pretty good that if people stick with the exercises for a few weeks, they often see improvements. So that's kind of the question is, you know, is the person willing and able to stick with the exercises for several weeks? So somebody who's very frail and has dementia and is forgetful, it's yeah. you know, not likely to work out, but someone who uh, is motivated and can stick with it, we can, we definitely see improvements when people stick with it. That's right. Um, and I actually even learned about this little uh, gadget. It's called PeriFit, I think. And this is where you can monitor your progress. So you insert this little peri-fit in the vagina, and then it's attached to your smartphone, and you can play a video game oh, my God. <laughs> with uh -huh. the pelvic floor muscles. Ah, okay. um, and depending on how you contract and relax the pelvic floor muscles, you can get a certain score on your video game, and you know you can set goals, and you can track your progress. Wow. Well, and you know, this is just a modern gamified version of something that we've had for a fairly long time in medicine called biofeedback, right? That's right. Because yeah. biofeedback is when, you know, when they can give you some kind of feedback to what your muscle is doing, you learn to yeah. work 
the muscle or relax the muscle because they use yeah. it, I think, also for headaches. Yeah. And they used to need all these like electrodes and special equipment in the office. And wow. now with smartphones and the right yeah. little device and sensor, you can do it at home. You can do it. You can do it at home. Well, so, I hadn't heard about that, but fun. that is fascinating. We'll have to find a link to share. Yeah. Okay. So go. consider the PeriFit. Yeah. So consider the PeriFit or just, you know, doing it without find some other way to motivate yourself to do them. And then, you know, you have to look at your fluid intake, um, maybe moderate that. I would say these non-pharmacologic approaches too can be really important if it's a situation where you're a care partner for someone who has uh, incontinence, um, especially if there's a component of cognitive impairment, because in that case, um, it is probably going to be behavioral techniques that are going to be the key. So there's a term that uh, Dr. Wegg used called managed incontinence, and that made a lot of sense to me. So that's where there's a combination of uh, you know, there's a term called timed toiletting as mm-hmm. well, or prompted voiding. Yeah, so yes. that's, I'm, I'm know, a fan of it. Yeah. So that's where there's a routine. The, the toileting happens at certain times, the same predictable times. And that's to encourage the blood, you know, the person to empty the bladder in a, in a routine and they're more likely to stay dry in between. So, you know, oftentimes when someone's living with dementia, it's a combination of that timed voiding or time toileting with maybe some pads, maybe some other interventions, but that can be, uh, that and, can be. The and keeping way. the bowels moving. And keeping the bowels moving. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Yeah. So very important. Yeah. And then let's talk about a few of the other sort of common treatment approaches for the different types of incontinence. So for stress, you were mentioning pelvic yeah. floor exercises. Pelvic floor exercises, yeah. Estrogen, if it's a woman, so using the estrogen topically. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, a cream. Lower lower risk than taking estrogen. But for some people, hormone replacement medication is, you know, taking estrogen orally can be effective. But, you know, surgery, so that's, so most people don't want surgery. That's the one thing Dr. Wegg kind of emphasizes that people are, if we talk about incontinence, people are afraid of catheterizing themselves. They're not enthusiastic about that and surgery, but for stress incontinence, surgery can be very effective. So, you know, in the right person, again, as you mentioned, so somebody who has, you know, is fit enough to have surgery, uh, can kind of understand the risks and benefits. I think you have to be able to catheterize yourself a little bit after the surgeries for stress incontinence you know, because your, your continents might not return right away. Uh, so those folks can get a great result from surgery. But there, there can be some less invasive procedures too. So there some, sometimes there's injections that can be delivered into the bladder outlet. So, you know, that could be done. And, and sometimes that doesn't need to be done again for a year. So, you know, for someone who couldn't sort of undergo a, a major surgery, sometimes having that kind of thing can work well. Okay. And then for urge, which I think people often sometimes refer to as overactive bladder, right? What are treatments that work for urge? Yeah. So that's where, and again, so there can be some um, behavioral techniques. So some people with urge can benefit from timed toileting, you know, to to try to lengthen the time between the the times they go to the toilet. I think there's Um, also something, if I remember right, called bladder training, right? Where you're supposed to monitor yourself and when you get the urge, not give into it right away because you can actually practice that reflex and diminish, to a certain extent, diminish the urgency and control it a little bit better. So that's another, um, again, that takes people Mm -hmm. who are motivated and can stick with it. But I think when they do, they can see some some improvements. But then a lot of the medications... So that are yeah. for overactive bladder. So yeah, why don't you That's talk right. briefly about those? So that is where the ditropans of the world can be very effective, but that would be sort of the first generation, the old-fashioned anticholinergic or anti-muscarinic. Um, so the muscarinic receptor is the one that it acts on um, to kind of tighten up the bladder uh, muscle and uh, reduce the urge. Right. So and just to remind the audience quickly, so acetylcholine is this neurotransmitter that is involved in your brain's thinking, but is also involved in those receptors in the bladder, Uh right? Uh So, Uh uh, and also it's in receptors all through the body, also in your bowel. 
Right. And so many, so those medications that are meant to interfere with the acetylcholine in the bladder will yeah. also unfortunately interfere with it in your brain, which is why it's sedating. Yes. Also yeah. give you dry mouth, also give you constipation. Yeah. And so those anticholinergics are drugs that we geriatricians love to hate, but it's true <laughs> that, um, that if the problem is the bladder receptors getting overstimulated and they block that, it can help just with that overactive bladder. So, and yes, you were saying oxybutynin is an old one that has historically been given quite a lot for incontinence. We're not huge fans of it, but, uh, but it does help some people, right? It does. No, it does for sure. And I do still see a lot of people on it. You know, I do my best to stop it or to substitute it for one that is a more modern. Right. Because as you mentioned, um, the, you know, there, there are these receptors throughout the body. So if we can have formulations of antimuscarinics that are more likely to just act on the bladder, and not everywhere else, then they tend to have, you know, less side effects. So there are some newer generations of those pills like solafenacin, darafenacin, uh, for example. So those ones um, I have used in people who are, you know, living with dementia or some kind of cognitive impairment with less side effects than, but for sure, I mean, oxybutynin, I've seen people who have been on that and then when it stopped, it's like, um, an epiphany where the cognition is improved and the person kind of goes back to them to being themselves. So we want to avoid those ones, but the newer generation uh, we can often use quite safely and with some effect. Yeah. I think yeah. the challenge in the United States is that the older ones are usually cheaper. They're available as generics Yeah. and the newer ones often are not. And yeah. so it's, you know, for us in the States, we have to really consider people's prescription drug plan. Do you want to know what happens in Canada? They're, they're covered, uh, but you have to put a limited use code on. And to get uh, the limited use code, you have to try and fail oxybutynin. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but so are you at least allowed to say, well, this person got more confused or developed cognitive symptoms when they were on it? You, well, you have, no, you can just say that they failed a trial. I see. Wow. And then you can fill in the limited use number. Yeah. And then okay. it's covered over 65. Oh, well, so, that's good. Okay. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, you have to consider whether it's worth it, you know, and, and maybe try it and then say, well, for the, for having, you know, this much improvement, is it worth paying for, or is it worth the right. side effect? So, yeah. Yeah. So if you're offered a medication for incontinence, ask if it's yeah. anticholinergic. Yeah. Ask if you can have one of the newer ones that is affects the brain less. Yes. And make sure also that your problem actually is urge or overactive okay. bladder and not one of the other issues. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So now let's talk about treatment for overflow incontinence. Right. So, I mean, overflow is often the prostate gland. So there are a couple of options there. So there's, we can try to, sh you know, obviously it depends on the issue, right? With the prostate, is it a benign enlargement of the prostate or is there a prostate cancer? So if it's, if it's related to cancer, you know, there's, there's a whole other um, range of treatments that could be radiation, surgery, or, or medication. But most of it is benign. This is a very common problem in older men, benign exactly uh, prostatic right. hypertrophy, BPH. Right. And I find that it's one of the most common uh, types of medication that older men are taking is yeah. medications for this condition. So maybe we can review right. quickly what are the two types of medication that we often see older men taking for the prostate. Yeah. So you must see a lot of people on those alpha blockers or alpha, alpha receptor antagonists. So those are things like doxazosin uh, is one of them. So those tend to kind of relax the sphincter. Yes. That one is used less right now in the United States, but in the United States, what's very popular is Tamsulosin, okay. brand name Flomax. Flomax. Yes. Yeah. So awesome. I have lots and lots of uh, older men. Yeah. on uh, tamsulosin and I think it does you know help make it easier to pee but the yeah. side effect that we see with these medications is that those uh, it affects the muscles the little mm -hmm. muscles in the urethra and it also affects the little muscles in your blood vessels mm -hmm. and so we do see more of people having their blood pressure drop when they're standing yes on yeah. that medication so I, d I definitely look into it if uh, one of my older patients has had falls if yeah. they're on that medication we look at that. Yeah, the urologists will argue with me sometimes that it doesn't. <laughs> that it's oh, not 
happening. There's like well. proven research on it. <laughs> I have it on my, uh, I'll find the resource. I had it, I looked it up for my list of um, medications to avoid if you're worried about falling. Okay, but what's the other medication? It's a trade-off, right? Yeah. And then the other one are the five alpha reductases. And so those act on the prostate gland itself to kind of shrink the tissue. Right, yeah. The one that's most popular in the States, I don't know if it's the most popular in Canada, is um, finasteride. Okay. Brand name Proscar. Is that what's yeah, most common? There's two of them. Yeah, there's finasteride and dutasteride. That's right. That one's also used in, in the States. Yeah. And um, those I find have actually relatively few side effects for our frail yes. older men. I right? do too. Yeah. yeah. So pretty good. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are on both of those in combination. Mm-hmm. Um, Which and makes then, sense. And, they have kind yeah. of complementary action, right? One yeah. shrinks the prostate. Yeah. The finasteride, dutasteride, and the other relaxes the urethra to make it easier for the urine to come out. Yeah, that would probably be the combo there. And then if there is a need to catheterize, like unfortunately, sometimes some people do need to catheterize or even have an indwelling catheter. And for some people, and sometimes it's only for a while, the alpha antagonists and the five alpha reductases, they sometimes take a while to work. So if someone develops urinary retention, they might need to have a catheter for a few weeks and then the, the catheter can be withdrawn and you know, the person can void because the medication has started working. So, um, so with overflow, unfortunately, sometimes catheter is a part of the management. Right. And men yeah. who have uh, a tendency to overflow, they, they sometimes can uh, kind of acutely get retention, right? Because yeah. sometimes because of medication side effects or something else. And, and yeah. I, I remember as a... Uh, younger resident, an older man coming in and he had gone very weak and tired. And it turned out when we felt his belly, he had this lump in his belly, this big round lump and it was his bladder. And he had something like a liter of urine in there and was going into kidney failure because he couldn't pee it out. And that's why he was so weak. (laughs) And it was, you know, it was his retention. So it can, it can be a quite serious condition. Yeah. yeah, it is. And a lot of people develop that in hospital too. You know, sometimes a catheter just gets whipped in there um, to monitor fluid output or, you know, for, for convenience, for toileting, and then it's harder to discontinue it. So the person goes home with a catheter for a while. So yeah, they're great uh, tools to have at our disposal, but they can be, yeah, there are risks for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the last type of incontinence was the disability associated. But you were, you were um, referring to, to this earlier that for this, it's really about a kind of comprehensive management plan that helps the person get to the bathroom on a regular basis and that it's not going to be treated with a pill. You really need to kind of rearrange the support around the person. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and sometimes it's, and it is usually a whole big plan, you know, like I I must say, sometimes I will try bladder medications, you know, maybe there's a component of urge or maybe there's a, you know, a component of something else. Um, But most of the time uh, the plan is just around uh, the support, the, the physical and, uh, you know, mechanical supports that are needed to kind of uh, promote continents. So, yeah. Uh, and again, a, a routine, a routine yeah. where you take them yeah. you know, or remind them or encourage yeah. them regularly often goes well, a long yeah. way. And there are apps for that too, you know, and which vary in terms of how, how much they interfere. So, you know, there, there's an app that could just be a reminder app, you know, that might be good for someone who has some mild issues with continence and, you know, could be, uh, could be reminded electronically uh, or verbally that it's time to go to the bathroom. But there are even um, apps that can support a bladder training approach, right? So you could get a little wearable device that would monitor bladder fullness and would sort of give you a signal when you get to a certain volume and it's time to empty the bladder. So, you know, that kind of thing could be linked to your smartphone too. And it could tell you when it's time to pee or, you know, how much when, when you're getting close and you can plan your day accordingly. So there's all kinds of electronic um possibilities devices that uh-huh. can help right, right. and you can have fun at the same yeah time. <laughs> so to kind of start to wrap this up i mean we've been talking about how you know it's not normal to leak or have urinary difficulties we want you to bring it up there are things yeah. we can do and the reality is that there also is a role often for pads and incontinence yeah. products 
either yeah. as a backup to give people a little bit more security so that they can go out uh-huh. or because for some of our frailer patients, especially if they have dementia, you know, it may not be realistic to expect that we're going to be able to keep them completely dry, right. uh, even with a time toileting routine. So can you talk a little bit about the pads and how you help your patients and families determine when it's a good time to use them and how to find the right one? Yeah. Well, it is very much an art, I find. And there's kind of like almost like a little lore that go, you know, I think is passed around uh, between different um, caregiver support groups and that and uh, peer support groups. Because I do find a lot of times patients will come in and say, I, I found that, you know, you've got to tell your other patients if they have a man who has incontinence. Um, this, you know, I've, I figured this out and it keeps him from soaking the bed at night. So, you know, it's, it is a lot of trial and error sometimes. Um, we're going to link to some excellent online resources. I think it's great now that we have um, online resources because there's, um, there's one uh, site called continenceproductadvisor.org. So they're not selling the products, but they will give you, you know, you can kind of tailor the products to your preferences and what your issues are. Um, And there is really a range. So there's, you know, there are different types of diapers that are standalone diapers. There are underpants that have incontinence products in them. There are ones you can put in your underpants. And there's even devices that can be used at night. So things like uh, a condom catheter you know, where the, there's a catheter, but it's attached to a condom. So it doesn't actually go inside the uh, urethra. And, you know, if somebody can tolerate that, that might keep them dry overnight. Um, there's one that's adapted to be used in a woman. So, you know, someone who doesn't have a penis, but uh, has a vagina, there's a little sort of cup that fits around the vulva and that could be used overnight. There are even clamps. So this was one thing I learned from Dr. Wegg is that there is a, a little penile clamp that can be, that can stop the overflow incontinence. So, you know, clearly we don't want to keep that on for days and days, but if somebody has a, um, an event where they don't want to be bothered to have to go to the toilet, they could put on this clamp and then um, take it off when they're done. So there's almost anything you can think of. There's a range of products and it does often take a little bit of trial and error, But, you know, apps or websites like the Continence Product Advisor or going, if you have the resource of a a continence clinic, you know, there are several of those around. Often they're run by nurses and physios, but they can really give you good advice about uh, about what to try. And connecting with online groups of other people, either family Uh caregivers or other older adults, because uh, I think people often ask you know, me and maybe they ask you and I, I just feel like there's so much variety in the products. So one thing is I, I, you know, tell people, people say, well, I try a pad, it didn't work. And even though I don't know all of them, I know enough at this point that there are many different types and that it's partly a question of finding the one that's a good fit for, for your need, right? That's partly the gender of the person, whether it's at night or whether it's something they need to wear under their clothes during the day, but that also exchanging ideas with other other patients, other families, you know, to hear about what they found worked for them and that you just have to do the trial and error and that we're often not able to do that for people in the clinic. Yeah, no, it's hard to do in, it's hard to, uh, in a clinic setting, I can't always, you know, go over everything, but yeah, the peer groups are good. And sometimes you could even trade, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you bought a big package of (laughs) products and you couldn't use them all, well, maybe somebody else can, and you know, maybe they have what fits with you. So um, the the networking is amazing right. to see that, you know, in the sort of incontinence uh, community and the care partner community, um, that kind of networking is invaluable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really do see that it helps. Great. Well, this has been so wonderful and useful. So maybe we can close by just having you recap the key takeaways for our audience. The key things that we want older adults or family caregivers of older parents to take away that they should know about urinary incontinence and what they should do if they've had any concerns about this. Yeah. So urinary incontinence, it's not just wetting yourself, but it can include a range of symptoms. And, you know, those symptoms are not normal, but they're very common. So one in three women, one in 12 men um, over the age of 60 have some incontinence symptoms. And you're entitled to advocate for yourself, I think, and keep asking and finding out what you can do about it. And 
you know, start with looking at your lifestyle, consider some changes, and it's never too early in life to make some changes that will promote continence later on. So maintaining a healthy weight and uh, having exercise in your life will help you to be less incontinent in the future. And, you know, consider your goals. So any kind of uh, management plan that you're coming up with for your incontinence, it may be that it's for a person who's living with dementia, you're going to go for aim, uh, managed continence or, you know, a time toileting routine. But if you set realistic goals and, you know, work towards them, you're much more likely to be successful. But it starts with advocating for yourself and right. asking for help. Yeah. So it's not, it's not normal. You don't have to put up with it. Your health providers should be willing and able to help you. And most of the time, there's no easy, quick, magic medication fix. But with, uh, you know, especially if you work with your doctor to figure out what's causing it, uh -huh. there are often ways to make it uh, much better. And it's really important for the quality of life and well-being of older adults. So, uh, yeah. so we will be posting the resources that Dr. Nicole has found for us as part of the show notes. And if you have any questions, you can post them and we will be uh, responding, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Every okay. That's an answer. <laughs> well, Dr. Nicole, thank you so much yeah. for uh, bringing this to the podcast today and for being with us at Better Health While Aging. I'm excited to have you co-hosting some of our upcoming episodes. I'm excited too. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see you again on the show very soon. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.